You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. As I mentioned earlier, today uh, we are kicking off a new sermon series uh, entitled The Local Church, God's Plan for His People. Um, Pastor Chris and I have been discussing this topic for for a while, and I feel like one of the um, maybe underappreciated roles of a pastor is to help the church think about the church, um, what it means to to be the church, uh, what the church should do, what the church exists for, and to to continually bring us back to God's Word uh, to remind ourselves of our identity, not just as individual Christians, uh, but as belonging to the body of Christ. Um, and and when, when we walk through our passage today and, and throughout the next six weeks, we continually see that when God draws a person to himself, when God saves a person, he saves them uh, into his family. He saves them into the church. Um, and, and it's easy in our day to, uh, to either be confused about the church or to minimize the significance uh, of the church. We, we live in a time where people are deconstructing their faith and disconnecting their faith from the church. Uh, there are lots of questions about, is the church really needed? Is it really relevant? Is it valuable? Does it do more harm than it does good? Um, and, and in a post-2020 world, uh, we live in a, an age where there's increased interest in virtual church. If, if going to church online was uh, enjoyable when we had to do it uh, in March uh, of 2020, why not keep it going? Um, and, uh, and questions arise, like, is virtual church really church? Can you really have community and carry out what God calls us to in his word? And, and even beyond these kind of pressing uh, issues, we just live in a transient society and culture, just like we acknowledge today. And from time to time, believers will find themselves in a place of needing to look for a church and needing to find a new church home. Uh, and uh, we, we live in a time, as I mentioned earlier, there are, ch- there are Christians who have been perhaps walked through difficult circumstances uh, in their church. Uh, I, I say often at TCC that there isn't a there isn't a perfect church and we're not a perfect church. And if we were, once you joined us, we wouldn't be right. Like so uh, there, there is no perfect church out there. But in imperfect churches, there are people, uh, believers who sin against each other and hurt each other. Um, and so there is real church hurt that people have experienced experienced and and there's at times a process of having to figure out what does that look like for me to find a church home when I've gone through uh, a difficult or terrible experience in a church family when I've maybe legitimately been sinned against uh, without reconciliation without forgiveness being uh, being established and, uh, and and all of these things raise the question of what is the church What's God's plan for the church? What's God's purpose for the church? What is the church supposed to do? Uh, what, is, what is a healthy church? What does it mean to really find a good church? Now, if you're looking for a church, I hope over the next six weeks um, that what you hear will be helpful to you. Uh, but I'm not saying this as a, uh, you know, I'm not slipping this in as like a, a membership matters class on Sunday morning. This isn't passive aggressively trying to tell you uh, about something. We have, a tr- we have a membership matters class coming up um, <clears throat> next week at nine o'clock. Uh, if you're interested in joining us, we would love uh, for you to come and be a part uh, of that as we just talk more about 
about what it means to be a member of the church. Uh, but what we're doing here is actually trying to look at the topic uh, of what God says about his church uh, and God's design for his church so we can understand uh, what a healthy church is, what a, what a church um, should be about and should be doing. And, and one of the reasons I mentioned that it can be confusing and our culture is confused on this topic and Christians, not only outside the church are confused on the topic, Christians inside the church are confused on the topic. And there's a few reasons why that's the case. Um, three in particular that I want to just kind of briefly mention. Individualism, consumerism, and pragmatism. Uh, I don't plan to talk a lot about isms as they can uh, make us uh, uh, go to sleep and the chairs are already comfortable enough for you. But um, when we think about uh, church, one of the first things that I think is a, maybe a roadblock for some and in, in both in the, in the broader culture and in the church is this idea of individualism. In, in the church, there's kind of a sentiment of me and Jesus, right? Like if me and Jesus, Jesus, we can do anything. And on one hand, our faith is intensely personal, right? And so sometimes we rail against individualism and we forget the fact that uh, you can't be a Christian without personally trusting in Jesus and personally having a relationship with Jesus. But the personal aspect of our faith isn't the only aspect of our faith. And it can't just be me and Jesus because Jesus died for his church and when he saved you, he intended to bring you into his church. So we have the personal aspect of our faith and the corporate aspect of our faith. At times, individualism cuts out the significance of the corporate and elevates uh, the individualistic element of our faith or the personal element of our faith. And so uh, sometimes this also leads us to look for a church where we feel like we can best express ourselves, where uh, what's most important is, is, is having the ability to express ourselves. And, and we at times even uh, ha hear the sentiment of, I like the church, I like Jesus, but I could do without the church. Or it's not Jesus that I have a problem with, it's the, the church that I have a problem with, right? And, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, there's some real struggles and challenges that people can have in their church experience that we... Uh, want to be aware of and sensitive to and, and graciously and patiently walk through. And yet, when I think about what Jesus says about the church, the way through working through church hurt ultimately is going to take you back to being a part of a healthy church as, as the way to have the type of healing uh, and restoration that, that's ultimately needed, either through reconciliation with the offending parties or God bringing you to a new place uh, where you can experience his grace and his love and community in the way that God designed it. And so even as we think about uh, individualism, how it can distort our understanding of the church, it kind of becomes centered about us uh, recasting our faith kind of in our own image and, and what suits us. It closely is tied with consumerism. Um, and, and this flows out of individualism. And, and the idea is that the church is a purveyor of spiritual goods and you are the consumer. And so does the church have the goods that you're looking for? Um, now, if you're looking for a church, no doubt you're going to have preferences uh, that you're going to, to kind of, you know, evaluate what you're looking for in a church if you're, uh, if you're at that place. And, and that's good. And the, the problem is sometimes we allow our preferences to be elevated so much that we never actually settle down and commit ourselves to a church or our preferences keep coming up and we keep hopping from church to church to church. It's not uncommon for a Christian to say, I enjoyed that church, but they didn't do X. Or I really like this about that church, but they didn't have this. So I, de I decided that I should move on and check out some other churches. And 
we're not talking about this today per se, but are those good reasons to, to leave one church and look for another? Um, as I mentioned, there are plenty of situations that are difficult and hard that you have to work through and think through, and you might need to leave a church or you might need to stay and work through a church. But what consumerism does is it creates easy come, easy go Christians. You come in, if they have what you like, you go, if you don't. Do they sing the right songs? Is it modern enough? Do they sing hymns? How do, how do they make me feel? Are the people friendly? Did the kids' ministry offerings fit my needs? Did they have people who looked like me or had similar life stage to me? Was the sermon too long? Probably. Or was it too short? Probably not. Or is it just right? That's what I'm going for, all right? And all these different things that, that are going on when you look at a church, again, lots of preferences are important for you to evaluate and assess what you want when you're committing to a church. But the problem is when people commit to churches, it's often our preferences and the consumerism that shapes how much we're willing to give ourselves to the local church. Uh, and instead, we keep ourselves sometimes at arm's length distance and kind of have a volunteer, uh, voluntary kind of aspect of like, well, I'll volunteer here or there. But, you know, if it doesn't mesh with, mesh with my schedule or doesn't meet my needs, then I'm going to go do something else. And all of that leads the church, often the leadership in churches, to be driven by pragmatism. What works? What's going to get the people in the doors? Um, so uh, we see this in our broader culture, um, whether it be in politics or businesses, where they kind of they look at the polls and they say, OK, the people care about this. So we're going to talk about this topic. Um, obviously, as a, as a pastor and as pastors, we care about preaching and speaking to the issues of our day faithfully from God's word. But uh, the question is, what wags the tail? Uh, is it the interest and the uh, concerns of, uh, of the world or the, the truth of God's word that drives uh, what the church does? And so sometimes uh, pragmatism says, okay, people are interested in this. I'm going to preach on that. Now, and it's helpful to preach on topics that people uh, are thinking about and, and care about, but uh, being driven by God's word is vital there. Or uh, sometimes churches realize, well, if I don't talk about these topics, then people like that. And if I emphasize these other topics, then people really like that. So maybe, maybe we should just focus in on these certain things and neglect these other things. And in fact, a primary desire of denominations and of churches that have swerved away from believing the gospel and the trustworthiness of the scriptures a primary desire of them is, is a desire to reach more people, a desire to make the faith understandable and relatable and relevant to our broader culture. I'll never forget in seminary reading the, the works of Frederick, Frederick Schleiermacher, who's known as the father of kind of liberal theology, uh, basically believing in uh, the Bible as a man-made document and uh, not in the deity of Christ and, and basically just believing in Christianity as doing social good, you know, and having kind of certain moral principles and, and, and these sorts of things. And, and his driving desire was to make the Christian faith more accessible and understandable to the broader culture. And in doing so, he stripped it of all of its truthfulness. He stripped Christ of the cross as a Christianity uh, without, uh, without the cross, uh, Christianity without sin, a Christianity uh, without obedience and without repentance. And soon enough, you start subtracting all these things for Christianity. You have no Christianity at all, but something radically different. And what's driving that is pragmatism. Now, a lot of churches don't go there, but we just allow pragmatism uh, to drive us in that the, the primary marker of success is numerical growth. And obviously, things that are healthy grow. And so there's room to, to press in and think about growth. 
But when we think about numerical success as the standard of our growth, rather than both faithfulness to the word of God and fruitfulness that stems from God's word, then we can get distorted and start chasing after a definition of success that is in contradiction to what God says. And so all of these things make it challenging for us to think about what the church is and, and what God's plan is for the church. And for us, we have to ask, what does God say about his church? What is God's plan for his people? And that's what this sermon series is about, a desire to look at six different passages over the next few weeks um, that help us to understand God's plan for his church. What is the church? What's his plan for the church? And why does it matter for every Christian? Uh, that's, that's what I want us to look at today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And this passage uh, is going to help us uh, look at Jesus' own teaching about the church. There's, there's actually only two uh, references and use of the word church uh, in the Gospels, and they both are in Matthew, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. So this is the first time the word for church um, Uh, Ecclesia is used in the New Testament, and it provides us a glimpse into what Jesus thinks about the church, his desire for his people. I'll I'll caveat this to say, while Jesus didn't use the word church very often, he talked a whole lot about his people and the people he desired to to create for himself and to draw to himself, uh, both of Jew and Gentile uh, together uh, in Christ and his plan to bring that about through his death and resurrection. And so, um, so he uses the word church sparingly, but the topic as it relates to the church is much to say. But when he does use the word, we ought to perk up and pay attention to what he says, right? Um, because it's of importance for us. And so Matthew as a whole has, has kind of started with the birth of Christ, showing us how Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises of, uh, related to the Messiah, that God has been faithful to his promises, the Savior has come, and Jesus begins his ministry in and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and casting out demons and healing the sick and preaching and teaching and traveling around into these different areas. And we've come to a point in the gospel of Matthew where there's beginning to be a steady stream of conflict with the religious leaders of the day um, and and Jesus' disciples that he called in the beginning, the 12 and large uh, likely a larger body that followed them, are following Jesus. And in Matthew 16, he kind of steps away from the crowds and he's teaching his disciples. It's really a passage in some ways that's kind of about discipleship, about what it means to know Christ, what it means to be a part uh, of, of his body, uh, and, and what it means to follow Christ. He gives uh, the prediction of his death, and then he gives a message about taking up the cross and following Christ. And what it means to deny ourselves and follow him. But meshed into it uh, is this interaction that Jesus has with his disciples outside of Caesarea Philippi, in which he asked them the most important question. Um, because in some ways, while what is the church is an important question, the, more, the most important question is, what do you make of Jesus? Who is Jesus? And that's what Jesus asked his disciples. And what we're going to see in this passage is five, five truths about the church. And the first is that the church is made up of people who know and confess Jesus as their Savior. And we see this in Jesus' interaction with his disciples on this question. Um, if, you, if you look there at 13 to 15, starting in, in verse 13, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? He's doing this with the backdrop being Caesarea Philippi, um, a predominantly uh, Gentile, non-Jewish city 
um, that's about 25 miles outside of Galilee. It was known for being the birthplace of the god Pan, the most famous fertility symbol in ancient paganism. Uh, and it's in the backdrop of this idol worship um, and uh, against the, uh, the background of Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked his disciples who have been walking with him, observing him, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he kind of solicits some uh, public opinion. Uh, what's the, the word on the street about who Jesus is? And, uh, and, and I, th- I think it's helpful thinking about the context in which Jesus asked this question, just to remind ourselves. Sometimes in the, in the myopic moment that we find ourselves in, where we just are confronted with what's right in front of us, we think that this is the hardest time to be a Christian, that Christianity began in more simple times. And now it's much more complicated. And, and so it's much more difficult. People were naive back then. And now, you know, we're so sophisticated and enlightened. And uh, we kind of we have some chronological snobbery is what C.S. Lewis called it. When we look back, we kind of look down our nose uh, and think about, uh, you know, they, they just didn't have it all figured out. It was some more simple times. Well, here it seems that uh, it's right in the midst of a pagan idol, idol worshiping pluralistic society that Jesus is asking his own disciples, who do people say that I am? The, 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 the context of Caesarea Philippi isn't much different than the context of Ann Arbor or Ypsilanti or the surrounding community. It's not much different than the many of the places we find ourselves in today. It's simply not the case that it was much more simple back then. But Jesus isn't asking this to kind of gauge, you know, his popularity and see, you know, maybe if he should run for the governor of uh, Judea or Caesarea or something. He's asking this because he desires to reveal himself to his disciples, because he's going to go from what's the public opinion about me to what's your personal testimony about me? Because he turns and he asks his disciples after they kind of give a range of answers, John the Baptist, Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets, um, at a bare minimum, everybody saw Jesus as an important teacher who had been sent from God. But Jesus asked the more pressing question. And with emphasis, many of your translations bring this out. He says, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? It's the most important question that anybody uh, can, can, can answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you make of Jesus? And that's how Jesus turns and asks his disciples, not what's the public opinion, but what's your personal testimony of who I am. You've seen the miracles and the casting out of demons. You've heard the teaching. You've seen my life. You've, you've walked with me all this time. Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. <clears throat> And Peter is that disciple, if you've read much of the Gospels or um, know kind of much about the the early disciples, Peter is the disciple who often spoke up. Sometimes he knocked it out of the park. Sometimes he inserted foot into mouth, right? Um, And and here he knocks it out of the park. In a few verses, he's going to insert foot into mouth where he confuses the work of God with the work of Satan. Um, And so um, we'll we'll come back to why that matters for us in, in a moment. But here he speaks up and he says, you are Christ the son of the living God. This is a confession of belief. This is a confession that Jesus is the long awaited for Messiah. You see, Christ isn't Jesus's last name. It's his title. He is Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the promised one, the savior that God had promised in the Old Testament, who is going to come to deliver his people and establish God's rule. 
All throughout the Old Testament, Israel waited. And often as they waited, they forgot God. They rebelled against God. And then they were sent into exile. And even in exile, they continued to rebel against God until uh, their hearts were awakened and their eyes were awakened and they remembered God's promises and they cried out to God. And as they cried out to God, God heard their cries and he was faithful to his promises. Though they forgot God, God didn't forget his promises. And God kept his promises. And Jesus comes not as another prophet, but as the promised one, as the Messiah, as the Savior that God sent to bring about the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus was born in Matthew 1.21, it says, This is Jesus, the one whom God has sent to save his people from their sin. You see, the, the most important question any of us could answer is what do we make of Jesus? And does what we make of Jesus align with what Peter confesses here in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior who is to come? And we know that Jesus gets the answer right, because Jesus says in verse 16, Simon Peter, uh, in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You see, Jesus gives a full throttle acceptance and blessing. The argument that the later Christians uh, put words in Jesus' mouth or made Jesus uh, to be a Messiah that he had never said he was, here he receives the full throttle uh, affirmation that Jesus is the promised Messiah who's come to save his people from their sins and establish God's reign. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This, this, isn't, this isn't just kind of Peter's hypothesis. This is God's revelation of himself. And it's important for us to remember that knowing Jesus isn't just something that we figure out on our own. Now, hear me, you can go on a personal journey of searching the scriptures and seeking answers and pursuing Christ. And you may feel like you're doing all the work. But when you step back and you begin to see who God is, I know of no Christian who says, man, I'm pretty good. I figured it out. But every person who comes to faith in Christ goes, man. How awesome is God? I wasn't even looking for him and he came looking for me. How awesome is God that he made himself known to me, that he didn't leave it up to me to figure out who he was, but he's revealed himself in his word. He's left us his word so that we might know him and we can know what it means to, to trust in him as our savior. In fact, perhaps the most common invitation that Jesus gave throughout his life when he invited people to follow him, it was a call to belief, but it was a belief followed with a, uh, an abandonment to trust in and to surrender their life to him. It says in, in Matthew 16, verse 24, after Jesus gives a prediction of his death and resurrection, he says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. To know Jesus is to have life. It's to have life in the fullest way. It's to truly live, to be free from sin, and to have peace with God. To, to know Jesus is to experience life as God designed us. And it's somewhat of a paradox that we find our life by dying, but isn't it a paradox that Jesus gives life through his death? Through his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, those who are dead in their sin can be made alive in Christ and find free, real freedom and true joy by submitting ourselves to Jesus. That's the invitation of the gospel to come to him, to surrender to him, believing on his death and resurrection and surrendering our lives to him. That at its core is what it means to respond to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is to believe 
that what he did is enough for your forgiveness and to trust in him to give you new life now and eternal life forever. And in response to Peter's confession, Jesus is going to say, it's upon you that I'm going to build my church. And we'll come and talk about what that means in a minute. But he's saying the church will be made up of people like Peter, whose eyes have been opened and whose hearts have trusted in Jesus as the Savior, as the promised Messiah, that the the church is made up of no doubt imperfect and uh, repenting in need of regular repentance, but it's made up of people who, like Peter, who sometimes knock it out of the park, who other times insert their foot into their mouth, but who believe that Jesus is the promised Savior and that what he did on the cross and in his resurrection is enough for me. Another way to say this is that it's the gospel that actually births the church. The church is made up of people who know and profess faith in Jesus as their Savior. Really, it's to say that the message of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection is what gives birth to the church. One of the things that we'll do throughout this series is I'll try to talk about some of the values and the, the strategy that we have as a church um, and, and why they matter. Here, one of our values here at TCC is the gospel, that we believe the age-old gospel is good news not for some people, but for all people. We don't need a new message. We have the right message, and it's good news for all people. And it's a reminder that a healthy local church is clear on the gospel and equips believers to know and share the gospel. Because it's only through the gospel that we can know Jesus. And it's only through the gospel that the church is birthed. And everyone who's a part of the church has to have come to know and believe in Jesus as their Savior. It defines our very uh, identity and our origin as well as it shapes our mission that this is what we're about. We're gospel people because we wouldn't be here without the good news of Jesus. And we're convinced that not only do we need to hear the good news of Jesus, but that everyone needs to hear the good news of Jesus. Because we're not interested in just public opinion about what Jesus is. We're interested in the accurate, the right uh, affirmation and, 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 and testimony that Jesus is the promised Savior who's come to forgive us of our sins. So we see the church is made up of people who know and believe in Jesus. Uh, but the church also belongs to Jesus. We see uh, this statement that Jesus makes following Peter's affirmation upon this rock. I will build my church. I mentioned earlier, it's the first time the word church is mentioned. And the first time the word church is mentioned, it's accompanied by the personal pronoun, my, because the church belongs to Jesus. It's through his death and resurrection that he's given birth to the church. Uh, And it's here that we see he takes ownership of the church as his treasured possession. He says emphatically, I will build my church. Jesus doesn't define himself over against his church. Jesus doesn't define the church as a nice appendage to who he is, but he defines the church as his own. There's no Messiah without a messianic community. There's no savior without a people he saves and gathers to himself. There's no Christ as the scriptures present him without the church. And so God intends for all those throughout time who confess faith in Jesus to find particular expression of their faith through local churches. You see, there's, there's uh, this picture continually throughout the scriptures of both the universal and the local church. The predominant message of the scriptures of the New Testament is actually about the local church. 
Um, but there are a number of times of 108 or so references to the church vast majority of them, upwards of 90%, I would say, are references to the local church. But there are many that refer more broadly uh, to, to this broader picture of the church. And Jesus is here talking about, he's not talking that he's going to build our local church or that local church or any local church per se, but his broader people, the, the, the church, he's going, uh, they belong to him and he's going to establish them and nothing will prevail against them. Acts 20, Paul says it this way to the Ephesians elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. When Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus showed up to Paul and he said, not why are you persecuting the church, but why are you persecuting me? Because the church belongs to him. And, and, and throughout um, the scriptures, we see that the church isn't a human invention, but it's a divine institution. To write off the church is to write off Jesus, since he purchased the church by his own blood through his death on the cross. It's through the church that God says in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, I was made a minister of the gospel. This gospel leads to Jew and Gentile being brought to faith in Christ. And it's so that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is God's eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus. And it's in him that we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So don't lose heart, Paul says, over my suffering. Because remember, the gospel produces the church. And through the church, God wants to display his manifold wisdom and glory in the world. This is something I can get excited about. This is something I can give my life to. This is what God is doing in the world. His purpose is that through the church, he's going to display his glory. Now, I said earlier that Peter is a good reminder to us of how God uses people and how he uses his church because Peter is an imperfect disciple. I don't know if that connects with you, but it connects with me. I'm an imperfect disciple. I don't follow Jesus the way I want to follow Jesus all the time. I, I am not consistent in all the ways that I wish I was consistent. I don't always share my faith as boldly and consistently as I would like. I don't always gain something from my time in the Word that's just amazing. I, I don't always speak to my family or my friends in a way that's consistent with what I believe and what God has called me to. I'm in need of continual repentance. Sometimes I don't see things God's way, but I see things my way or the world's way or even Satan's way, like Peter does in just a moment. And yet God has decided that his plan to accomplish his purpose in the world is to use the church that's made up of people like Peter and Michael and, and John and Alyssa and Victor and Bryce and Sierra and Chris and Bree and, and all kinds of people, even Catherine. God is intending to use us to build his church we are the, the building blocks of his church. We'll look later at Ephesians 3 as it says this, that we're the building blocks of his church. He's building us together to be his dwelling place in which his presence is known and his glory is revealed. The church belongs to Jesus. It matters to him. And he says not only does it belong to him, but it won't be destroyed. He says that I'm building my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The gates of Hades, the Jewish idiom of the powers of death. And he says that death couldn't stop Jesus. So therefore, death can't stop the church. In verse 21, Jesus gives the prediction. Verse, um, yeah, in verse 21, he gives the prediction that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified and he's going to rise from the dead. 
Listen, if the head of the church can't be held back by death, then his body, the local church, cannot be held back even by death. Whether it's persecution or suffering or trials or challenges, God has committed to build his church. The church will prevail. Jesus didn't say, I will build your church, so that should keep us humble. He didn't say, you will build my church. He said, I will build my church. Just as our eternal security is found in Christ, that we belong to him, not through our own doing, but through the work of Christ, we also are confident that the church cannot and will not fail in the end. What a good reminder when the church doesn't live up to its confession. When it doesn't live up to what it says it believes, when you've been hurt by the church, when you've been confused by the church, like, why would the church do that? Why would they say that and live this way? Why would that believer at that church do this? Here we're reminded of God's plan and purpose to to discipline those uh, who uh, err in sin and to reconcile those who are strained because of conflict, to provide forgiveness and restoration. His plan for the church will not fail because he cannot go back on his promise. And I said this earlier, but I say it here. Give yourself to being a part of serving something that cannot be destroyed. Give yourself to the church. Because God has promised that it will prevail. As I said, it doesn't mean that every church you're ever a part of will prevail. It doesn't mean that every church will exist until Jesus comes back. But God is using his church to accomplish his purpose and his church will not be defeated. Now we come to perhaps one of the more interesting and debatable parts of this passage throughout church history, at least. When Jesus says, and this point is the church is built upon God's word. When Jesus says to Peter, after his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, he says to Peter, drawing out kind of a, a, draw, a play on words with his name, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So what does it mean for Peter to be the rock upon which Jesus will build his church? Or what exactly is Jesus talking about he will build his church upon? Some people say it's his confession, the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's upon that confession that the church is built. And that sounds good. I like that. But it's clear Jesus is doing something with Peter, right? Like he uses Peter, Petros, uh, and then uh, Petro, the word for Petra, the word for rock. Uh, He uses this play on words. You're Peter, um, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I'm going to build my church. So clearly God has given Peter a special role in this process of building the church. Next week we're going to look at Acts 2, and it's at Acts 2 at Pentecost uh, after the Spirit comes, who is it that stands up and preaches the gospel that actually leads to the first church being formed? Bingo, Peter. Peter is the one whom God uses as his mouthpiece to declare the gospel and to form the first church in Jerusalem at Pentecost in Acts 2. And so is, is it saying that Peter is like the first pope and therefore there's this popal succession, papal succession? Uh, it's different, uh, papal, uh, not popal. Um, a papal succession that goes on throughout time and history. That's what the Roman Catholic Church would, would say this means here. I, I think the, the truth is um, what, what this is saying is you cannot separate Peter's confession from Peter and you cannot separate Peter from his role as an apostle. And that what, what's especially being talked about here is the apostolic role, uh, the apostolic testimony concerning Jesus 
as the promised Savior, according to the Old Testament, fulfillment of the Old Testament, as well as in the passing on of his teaching and, and concerning his life, death, and resurrection, that it's upon Peter and his role as an apostolic witness to Jesus' death and resurrection that the church is built. In Ephesians 2, 19-20 says it this way, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. The church is built upon the apostolic testimony of Peter and the other apostles. That apostolic testimony has been recorded here in the scriptures, in the New Testament. And it accords with the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament. And so what we really have here is the confidence that God has revealed himself and that the church is built not upon our projections about who he is, but on his revelation of who he is and his plan and purpose revealed in the scriptures. And just so we're clear, Peter later will say in 2 Peter, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. This is 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice that was born from heaven that said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, we ourselves heard that voice. We were with him on the mountain. And we have the prophetic word written in the scriptures confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is Peter's testimony concerning his role as an apostolic eyewitness of Jesus's life and death and resurrection. And John will add to it in 1 John 1. He says, we write to you that which was from the beginning, what we heard, what we saw, what we looked upon, what we touched concerning the word of life. They're leaning into their role as an apostolic eyewitness. And they said, the reason that we share it with you is so that you might share in it with us that what we've seen, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. So this leads us to see the value of Scripture in the life of the church because the church is built upon the testimony of the apostles and the the work of Jesus' death and resurrection that's recorded in the Scriptures, promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. And here at TCC, we say we value Scripture because we're transformed by the truth of God's Word. And we need to understand that a healthy local church is not only committed to the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's Word, but committed to faithfully preach God's word for the salvation of the lost and the building up of the believer. This is what makes a healthy church. And we don't have time today to unpack all of this, but I believe the best way to faithfully preach God's word in this way is through expositional preaching, preaching through passages uh, and books of the Bible in such a way that the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon doesn't mean that you can't preach on topical issues, even like I'm doing today. But even in those times, what you'll often notice is I take a text as the main starting point and seek to have that text define what is the message of the sermon. And it's why we walk through large chunks of Scripture and books of the Bible. In, in the first and second Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy kind of instructing him on how to do life in the church, how the church is to operate. And he says in 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He says, persevere in this, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. 2 Peter 2, 15 says, do your best 
Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The one skill that a pastor is to have, and this is good news because I don't have many skills, but the one skill that a pastor is supposed to have is to teach God's word. It doesn't mean you have to be eloquent. It doesn't mean you have to be uh, knowledgeable on this or that. But you have to be committed to faithfully taking God's word and saying what it says to God's people and helping them apply it to their life. Ezra 7.10 says that Ezra was a priest. Uh, he, he studied the scriptures. He explained the scriptures. And he applied the scriptures uh, to the people of Israel. That's the model of what a pastor should do. 2 Timothy 2.15 is what a pastor should do. Because scripture is, is so important to the health of the church, preaching it faithfully is vital for us to experience that health. And finally, I want us to see that the church is God's plan for accomplishing his plan on the earth. <clears throat> this final part is in verse 19, uh, where <clears throat> it says, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. <clears throat> and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The keys he's talking about are the authority to accomplish God's plan on earth as it is in heaven. I love H.B. Charles, pastor, said it this way. The binding and loosing that Jesus is talking about here aren't power encounters with demonic forces. It's about carrying out the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus entrusted to the church's stewardship. Literally, Jesus is saying, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. One other commentator says that the church doesn't tell heaven what to do, but it obeys on earth what heaven commands the church to do. It's seeking to apply consistently what God has said on the earth. And I say the church because here Paul or Jesus is talking to the apostles. But in Matthew 18, another passage that we'll look at later, Jesus uses the same language of the, of the keys and of binding and loosing and applies it to the church when they're dealing with sin in their midst. He says when there's sin in the church, believers should personally seek one another out to seek to restore them. If a believer persists in their sin, a number of believers are to go after them. And if they won't hear uh, the call to come back to Christ and not turn away from their sin, uh, it says that they are to take it to the church. And if he doesn't pay attention to the church, then they're to be uh, treated as a Gentile or tax collector. This is what church discipline uh, looks like. And he says this in verse 18, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The church is given the job of proclaiming the word of God and the gospel and helping people to understand if you don't receive the gospel, turn for your sin and trust in Christ, you remain condemned under your sin. But those who receive the gospel and trust in Christ, you have freedom and forgiveness. And the church has a responsibility to be consistent to that message so that the ministry of reconciliation, of forgiveness can take place. And God has given the church the responsibility to accomplish his plan on the earth. It's a plan that works through the gospel. And Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone as the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may be known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When he says that, he's saying that God's plan is to be accomplished through the church, and it's accomplished through the church as they're faithful to the gospel and to accomplishing his purpose in the gospel on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we pray. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's how the church 
operates. God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to be faithful to your message, to your mission. Because God's plan to make his glory and wisdom known in the world is through the church. So do we value the church the way Jesus values the church? Are we clear on the gospel and equipping God's people to know and be able to, to delight in and share the gospel? Are we faithful to the scriptures, seeking to allow the, the point of the passage to be the point of our sermons, allowing God's word to not only shape the preaching from the pulpit, but to shape the life of our church? This is why we do sermon discussion based on the passages of Scripture in our small groups. It's why we study the Bible together as men and in, as women. It's why in our kids' ministry, over a three-year period of time, we take our kids from the beginning of, the, of Genesis through Revelation. And why we seek to help them not just have knowledge about God, but allow the, 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 the truth of God to also be accompanied by a love for God. To help them see who God is so they can know and follow Him. It's why in the life of our church, we seek time and time again not to ask what works best, but what's faithful to God's word. These things shape a healthy church and they continue to help. Uh, they help de define who we should be so that we continue to grow more and more healthy. But they also help guide us as believers to think rightly about the church. Do we value the church like Jesus does? Do you treat the church in a way that's consistent with what Jesus says about the church in Matthew 16. It's my church for whom Christ shed his own blood. Do we love the church that way? And if God's plan and purpose in the world is accomplished through his church, I want you to think about this. What can you do? What's the number one thing you can do to be a part of accomplishing his plan on earth as it is in heaven? According to Matthew 16, 13 through 20, in Jesus' words about the church, I would submit to you that it's simply this. Join a local church. Simple college students, join a local church. Don't put it off. Singles, you're busy, you're getting found, founded in your life, working things out, don't neglect the local church. Parents with young kids, Life's busy and hectic and tiring and hard. Your kids lose their mind when they sit still somewhere longer than five minutes without cocoa melon. Don't neglect the local church. Parents, your kids are about to be gone out of the house, new freedom. Don't neglect the local church. Seniors, you're on the back end of life. You gave yourself and your time pretty hard to the church. Don't neglect the church. It's God's plan to accomplish his purpose in the world. Let's pray.